Hey guys, I've been trialling some revolutionary new swim tech and now you can get your hands on it too. This is EO Swim Better, a swimming evolution in the palm of your hands. Improve your technique with EO Swim Better. Analyze your stroke technique with EO's Swim Better handset. Go to eolab.com, use code BRETT at checkout and save 10%. Former swimmers, looking for a way to give back to the sport in New York City? Reach out to Imagine Swimming. Since 2002, they've been the premier learn to swim school with international and American staff, including Olympic champions, Anthony Irvin and Eric Vent. Imagine Swimming offers infant to adult classes, plus competitive team options, water polo, and an artistic swimming club coached by an Olympic silver medalist. With flagship locations across Manhattan and Brooklyn, Imagine is always looking for the next generation of swimmers to pass on their knowledge and passion for swimming. All right, Duncan Armstrong, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you doing? I'm doing good, mate. Now that I can see you, Corgi, <laughs> good seeing you, mate. What was it been about 16, 17 years even? It's been too long, mate. Yeah, it's been too long. Good Crazy. thing we haven't changed a bit, huh, in 17. We haven't. We 15, still look 17 good. Years. You look amazing. What are you doing? <laughs> a, lot, a lot of that uh, California or Alabama, uh, uh, what is it, uh, real life? It's, it's just quarantine. Quarantine fitness, they quarantine. call it. Quarantine. <laughs> There's nothing That's else good, to do. So anti -aging. Just, yeah. I was thinking about anti-aging, Alabama anti-aging. Oh, yeah. you're, you're a superstar for it. Yeah. Well, you know, the hair, the hair's disappearing, but I'm, I'm trying to keep the rest of it, you know, so. Yeah, you're too fast for your hair, mate. You've, you've outswum it. Just go with that. So what's going on with you, mate? What are you up to these days? Mate, uh, raising the family. got five beautiful kids, two for my first marriage, three for my second marriage. My, my marriage with uh, Rebecca has been, um, we've, just, we've just gone 16 years. Yeah. So we've been together 24. Um, so a lot of it is all to do with my fatherhood, uh, working for one of the big corporates down here, big telco in Australia, the biggest telco in Australia called Telstra. I've been with Telstra for about 20 years as a sponsored athlete and they sponsored our national swimming team. And I had a lot to do with that during my broadcast years as well as um, my swimming years. So that I continue that relationship on and, and, and I've got an internal role with them and, and my corporate career is going very, very well. Um, do a lot of motivational and uh, inspirational speaking, a lot of men's groups uh, and sharing my story and, and uplifting men because I think, you know, men need a bit of a, bit of a boost these days, especially down here in Australia and especially in these COVID conditions. So mm. I've got a very full life running around after the three kids that are still at home. Mm. Um, I've got a, a, a princess who's 14, who's going on 35. I've got a two little fellas who are 11 and seven. So I've got a fair bit of fathering to do. And I take that very, very seriously. Mm. Um, stay a little bit fit, still ride my bike around, help with charity work. And uh, just love living in Southeast Queensland, just love it. So Southeast Queensland, uh, down here in Australia, um, has got beaches, mountains, and you name it. It's a beautiful area, very, very tranquil. Um, it's where I grew up. So a lot of family and friends are here. Got a great, net, great network. So yeah, life couldn't be better, mate. Life could not be better. Oh, that's awesome, mate. Very good to hear. You know, like I said, I, I've had a lot of people reach out. I started this performance podcast, and and ultimately, I, I talked to a lot of coaches and swimmers, and you know, I've started to, I did a lot of Americans early on, and now I've started to reach out to some former friends and colleagues back in in Australia. Did a did a bunch of guys recently, but your name keeps coming up. Like you got to talk to Duncan, and obviously. You know, I know you've got tons of personality and you can talk, so that's always a good thing. Oh, mate, I'd like to date you too. That was a good setup. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, I, 
I really love that you're doing a performance podcast, mate, because, you know, as one of our top performers in the team, you know, you had that laser vision when you're wearing the green and gold. And I'm really glad that you're still sharing. I'm really glad that you're on that track because, yeah. so you know, performance is a really, really personal thing, a personal mm -hmm. journey. And we can all learn from each other with how we, how we approach it. Yeah. And performance and everything. Like I said, I've just been talking about my kids for the last two or three minutes. You know, my performance as a dad, husband, is, is something that's truly, truly important to me. Mm, absolutely. And yet it won't get a lot of press when you step out on stage in front of a thousand people and talk performance. You won't be talking about your father and mother. Yeah. You'll talk bits about it, but you won't talk all about it. So performance is a great topic. And I'm really glad that you're talking to a lot of guys who can share, a lot of guys and girls who can share uh, basically how they approach it because we all approach it differently and we can all learn from each other. Yeah. of what that word actually means, habits, behaviors, mindset, you name it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really, really important that we learn from each other and you continually learn. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I get, I get questions all the time. Obviously, I'm a sprint coach and I sprint, you know, so people are interested in sprint performance. But, I, but I'm more of like, look, all performance relates. We just got to find a way to relate it to each other and, mm. and, and, you know, study each other and listen to each other and, and try and figure out, you know, I, I took a kid by the name of Cesar Cielo to the Olympics in 2008. He'd never been to the Olympic games before. And I tried to instill the knowledge and experiences that I had so that he wouldn't make the same mistakes and have to go through another Olympic cycle, you know, that type of thing. So like if we can share and we can learn, we can kind of maybe hopefully eliminate some of these mistakes along the way and get the kind of quality performances that we need. So so this stuff is really good. I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot. So exciting that moment in your life, huh? Yeah. You know, like as you were talking there, I got about it. You went straight back to Beijing, yeah. straight back to the pool deck, mm. straight back to how you guys set up for that race. Yeah. And, and, and that's the thing about performance. It is exciting. Yeah. And you as, the, you as the mentor, as the coach, as a facilitator, teacher, whatever, you, whatever role you're playing that particular moment for Cielo, um, there's something wonderful about that wisdom. There's something wonderful about that sharing. Mm -hmm. And, and for him to go out there and, you know, all guns blazing, own the world, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And for you to be standing there part of it, you know, as, as invested in it, you know, it's just gives you goosebumps. And that's about, that's the performance that we want to talk about. Yeah. We want to talk about constantly, maybe not the Olympic performance, because that's a thing, right? That, that, that's, a, that's an environment and that's a thing and it's a four-year drive and it's a four-year clock and it's got its own conditions. But what we want to do as performance coaches or inspirational people or motivational people with a story to tell, and we've all got a story to tell, mm -hmm. is, is have those exciting moments of performance that I invest in someone. Could be your best mate, could be a bloke down the street, could be someone that you in your work team. But you invest, they go out, they try something new and it works. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so their brain, brain explodes with growth. They've got a different aspect on their life, just, just in one aspect. It's exciting stuff, isn't it? For it's sure, awesome. mate. Yeah, man. For sure. And it's so interesting to watch uh, old footage of you and the way that you're preparing for the Olympics and then your performances at the Olympics and then, you know, all around that. There's a lot of positive. And, and I think as high-level achievers and high performers, um, there's, there's those aspects to talk about for sure. But what I've found over the past couple of months in talking to people like Grant Hackett and Michael Clem and, you know, some other high-level performers, mm -hmm. there there's a there's a cost as well, you know, like when we, when we put so much into something, um, th there's also a negative that can come out of that. And so I kind of want to explore that a little bit with you and maybe some of the lessons that we've learned over time, um, from, from that, but let's dig into the, uh, the preparation itself, 
you know, and I know you've probably talked about this a million times, but there, there's so much to learn from it. You know, back in the eighties, it was certainly uh, a mentality of who can work the hardest. I'm sure. Yeah. You know, and you were renowned for the person that could take on an enormous amount of work. What, what was it, you know, what was it like back then for you? What was the workload like? Well, compared to when, when you guys were swimming in the noughties, it's almost like caveman stuff. You know, I'm not embarrassed by it, so don't get me wrong. But the 80s was all about volume. Mm -hmm. You had to do the volume. If you weren't doing the laps, you couldn't win a race. Mm. And yet the races were like a year away. And so you had a year of doing the volume work, a year of doing the really, really hard stuff. So it's interesting that you talk about cost for performance because there is a cost. You know, um, I don't use the word sacrifice because sacrifice can only be used by our soldiers and men and women in the military who get mm -hmm. shot at. You know, that's a sacrifice for your country. Yeah. Yeah. What we do in sport, we make tough decisions. I get on board with that. But those tough decisions are all about you and your betterment going forward. And, you know, even when you fail, there's not a lot of danger in it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, we made a lot of tough decisions. There was so much tension in the 80s just to do laps and laps and laps and laps. And so the coaches had to be a kind of a different type of coach. It was more directive than collaborative that we see today. Um, there was collaboration, but it was sort of like really direct in your face. And so you're always searching for that really, really strong general type coach. And I had one in Laurie Lawrence. You know, Laurie Lawrence and I, we just meshed and gelled together perfectly. It was a perfect um, relationship in sport, if you want to put it between yep. pupil, sensei, pupil, teacher, pupil, coach, you know, whatever you want, whatever analogy you want to use, whatever relationship you want to use. So whatever Laurie would say, it made perfect sense to me. So the thousands of laps that we did and all the running and the gym and the, the volume, 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 you know, when we were doing all that, it made perfect sense. All my friends were in the squad. We had a big squad of about 70 kids. The attrition rate was amazing. It was, was huge, but you didn't <laughs> notice it because you're always trying to climb the next person to get to the top 1% in the squad to be one of those animal-type people who owned the training, owned Laurie, because, you know, the battle was with Laurie every day. He would walk in on the whiteboard, put some awful 10K workout, and then you'd try to beat it. You'd try to beat the... Uh, the uh, bases, you, you try to get in there, even beat the warm-up base, you know, so you're not warming up, you're just going flat chat from the start and you're taking Laurie on. And, and, and in there is a lot of debris, a lot of victims of your mm. drive, of your narcissism, of, of all this sort of selfishness that you had to bring to the party. Yep. So there wasn't a lot of psychology. There wasn't a lot of, but there, but there was a huge amount of determination, focus, um, tension. And, and then it led to sort of like um, building this creature that you became that could swagger in on a pool deck at the Olympic Games and, and know you belong and know that you're ready to race mm. and know that every one of the seven guys I'm about to step up on the blocks, I'm going to destroy. And, you know, Mike Tyson has that really, really interesting YouTube clip where he's a nervous wreck in the change room, but as soon as he walks through the, through the ropes, Mike Tyson says this word, words, once I get in the ring, I am God. Mm. You know, so it's a really, really interesting headspace of switching on and, getting ready to switch on day in, day out, day in, day out, morning, night, morning, night, morning, night, morning, night, 11 times a week, 110 kilometers of workout, pool, running, gym, uh, taper, shave down, ready to go, <clears throat> walk through the, walk through the ropes, get in the ring, onto the pool deck and everybody else is just going to burn out. They're not, they're not going to come close to you. You're in this bubble of all bubbles. You're talking absolute madness. It's a mad scene. The four year clock is about to stop. You've got one minute and 47 seconds to destroy three world records on the pool deck in 1988. You're 20 years old. You've never been there before, but you totally belong. Mm. Now that's a headspace. Uh, and so yeah. that took me five years mm. of training with Laurie 
to arrive there, to be ready for that instance, to ready, ready for that pressure so it didn't cripple me and buckle me, mm. okay? And all that, and, and going back to your question, it was the volume 80. So everybody was doing it. I wasn't any more special than the other people in the squad, but I approached it slightly differently. That gave me that 1% when it counted in 1988 at the Olympic Games. So we did the volume. We had a lot of fun. Like I picked a coach in Laurie Lawrence who was truly an entertaining guy. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> Laurie was, I know, like to get 70 kids, no money, five o'clock in the morning, 3.30 in the afternoon, 200 laps in the morning, school, 200 laps in the afternoon for five years straight. You know, you've got to you've got to be up there on the entertainment value. <laughs> Otherwise, those teenagers just walk out the door and go and play Xbox or something like that. Yeah, right? yeah. And it was it was during the times before mobile phones. It was during the time before um, you know online computers, internet, social media. It was before all of that. And so you know, with rose colored glasses, you look back and say it was an easier time. There was more capacity. There was more capacity for dreaming. More net. We were bored a lot. Okay, it was boring swimming. But that that just helped you access your imagination of where you could go and what you could be doing and how Laurie is producing that in you. So I don't know how I'd go because uh, I'm a, I'm a distraction junkie. You know, like anything distracting, I'm like squirrel. You know, love it, right? <laughs> so I don't know how I would go with my personality in this day and age with mm. so much distraction going on and so many ideas. See, back then we had one voice in Laurie Lawrence. We had the competitors that we knew. We had the schedule that was very sparse in terms of opportunities. So we just moved towards those simple opportunities. We went away, you know, uh, international travel uh, was very, very difficult. So we weren't going overseas a lot more, not, not more than once a year. So you're racing the local market, you're racing all the people in Australia, you know them intimately. So again, no surprises. And again, getting ready, getting you ready for that unreal environment on the pool deck at the Olympics that you, that you can't prepare for and won't see before you get there. Yeah. So because you, you, you're used to studying your opposition, you know them intimately, you just transfer that to the international guys, to, to Gross, to Beyondi, to Fana, to Wodat, to these sort of guys that you know you're going to run into on the pool deck in Seoul in 1988. So again, you, you'd go to the library, you'd get out the magazines, you, you'd read the stories, you'd read the, what, uh, the newspaper stories. That's all you had. Mm. And so you didn't buy into too much hype. They, they had scrapbooks that were really impressive. Don't get me wrong. But because there wasn't a huge amount of information coming at you, yeah. you could get whatever information was there, decipher what was real or not, work out the bits that were really going to help you out and focus you and just dispense with the lot. Whereas today, you know, if you're racing Phelpsy, you better change strokes. But if you're <laughs> racing, if you're racing someone today from America, you know, I've got so much information coming at me that it would be confusing. Yeah. I've got so much information about who they are and what color they like and how many brothers and sisters are. You know, it would be very, very difficult. But back in the 80s, things were slower. The information was easier to decipher. Um, you knew the target and you just had to bear down and get into it. And, you know, there was injuries and sickness and glandular fever and all this, like, immune system problems because of the volume that we were doing. It came sure. with a lot of problems they don't suffer from today. Yeah. Um, but that's the environment. And to tell you the truth, we were cutting edge. We were like leading the scientific revolution in sport. You know, we're at the Institute of Sport, we're doing our blood work. You know, I can remember in 1988, uh, bicarb soda became a yeah. thing, yeah. right? So we had our team doctor, Dick Telford, walking around with a little polystyrene cup that you get at any cheap gas station. And it had, and he mixed up some bicarb and we were sipping it. And like, that was the buffering agent <laughs> of the yeah. 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 And so, you know, you look back at it now and you just laugh. There was no supplements. There was no sausage and there was no, you know, there was nothing. Yeah. Right? 
And so um, even though I look back and say, wow, we did so many things that have been dispelled to be wrong, mate, we were cutting edge. We were leading, yeah. we were leading the world. We are winning national championships and we are going overseas and winning world championships and Olympics. So, well, that's what I mean. I mean, you're, you were in a group, I guess, with John O'Seban, right? Like at some point, was he a little older than you or? Yeah. Okay. So John O won in 1984 against yeah. Grace and the as Butterfly. Yeah. At the Colos, uh, sorry, at uh, USC at yeah. the 84 Olympics, right? Yeah. So what kind of influence did that have on you? Oh, I'm a huge, you know, Laurie always professed that this is a squad of Olympic gold medalists. And it was true. Like John O was there, Tracy Wickham was there, uh, then we had the guys from our, from Los Angeles get back and we had uh, two silver medals, three bronze medal and Jono with the gold, you know, all in our squad, all training with it. So all of a sudden the what if became when, instead of, oh, what if I go to the Olympics and win? Instead of saying that we go, well, when I go to the Olympics and win, because mm. these guys were doing it. So Laurie was that good at sort of like attracting talent, getting talent ready and understanding that Olympic equation of, of about one minute every on one day, every four years. I'm going to get you ready for that. Mm. But you think about the coaching on that. You, you think about getting a kid today and sort of say, we're not going to do a lot of winning. We're not going to do a lot of racing. But in four years, on the 19th of September, mm. you're going to swim the best one minute and 47 seconds the world has ever seen. You're going to break a world record and you're going to beat the best in the world to win gold. I promise. And that's what he used to do. Wow. For well, that, that's sports psychology right there. Oh, mate. Yeah, what is it? Oh, and we need nice. a little bit of it today. I mean, we can get very, very distracted with formulas and 100%, thinking and, 100%. and all that kind of thing. Sometimes we need that really direct promise and investment. Now, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Now, we're talking about one of the all-time greats in Laurie. There's not mm. too many guys who sort of have walked that line and his background to get into that point of confidence, that he yeah. understood young people, that he understood yeah. that we might get sick, we might get a sore shoulder, and we might miss training because of an alarm clock, but he never will. Okay, so he had that unbelievable backup of action for his promise. Oh, that he made did. it completely believable. Mm. So I think the coaches have been a little bit under pressure in terms of being politically correct on everything. Um, having to cater for so many in a collaborative way these days. Like I look at you coaches as you walk out on deck and I look at the whiteboard and the, the chemical equation and the physics that are off that are on yeah. the whiteboard these yeah. days. And I go, whoa, okay. And then I see the way that, you know, the swimmers today are very collaborative. I feel this, I feel that, I think we're going to do this, you know. So it's a decision at the time, checking your body type, looking at your blood, seeing what's happening, no. you know, checking the week, making sure you're not going into, you know, all that. None of that was, 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 was done back in the day. And I'm not saying we were better at this. I'm just saying sometimes the Olympic environment demands no compromises. Sometimes the Olympic environment demands that if you're not ready, there's no collaboration. The gun is going to go on this particular day. The best in the world are going to show up. And if you try to negotiate with that, you lose. Mate, I'm, I'm with you 100% on this, by the way. <laughs> I love this. This is all me, all right? <laughs> the, the crazy Aussie with his yeah. direction. Yeah. Well, I, didn't, I, didn't, I never bought into the science. It always messed with my head. But I understood that on race day, I better be ready or I'm going to get chewed up and spat out. And, yeah. and, and honestly, I did, you know, at times. I didn't win Olympic gold like you. And I made the final, but I got chewed up and spat out twice by Gary Hall Jr., who was mm. more of the... I'm not. I'm on a four-year plan that is going mm. to get me to race day here, and I'm going mm. to win the Olympics. You didn't see mm. Gary Hall much between the Olympic Games. He just knew that on this day I'm going to win this race. And it's yeah. a very, very similar thing to what you're saying. You know, it's it's so interesting, and I and I see it too, where it's gone away from that. Mm. And 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 uh, at the end of the day, 
when you stand up behind those blocks, you're in a very vulnerable position. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how many equations you've written out. If you're not, if your mind isn't ready to perform, it's going to, it's going to crumble, you know, and, um, and I saw strength yeah. in you behind the blocks. Yeah. And see, that's, that's the brutality. Like I love the word brutal because the Olympics is brutal. Yeah. Everything about it is sure. Like there's nothing fun about pressure mm. and just getting to the Olympic village and getting your accreditation, you know, your pressure just goes a notch harder. Mm -hmm. Right. So we started about a five as you fly over there, yep. goes up to about a seven when you get your accreditation, goes up to about seven and a half when you get your room, gets up to about eight when you go for your first warm up and look at the Olympic venue. Then your opposition walks in, goes to a nine. Yep. And then you go home from that and you sit there and going, I can't stop it. It's happening. Mm -hmm. I better be ready. So that's brutal, right? You, you don't, you don't throw human beings into a pressure cooker like that and, and think you can negotiate it. Yep. Right. Someone's got to win these races and the gun is going to go at 7.05 mm -hmm. on one day every four years, an Olympic venue with 13,000 people there, a billion people watching on TV, commentators telling every move. You know, you can throw anything into that pot in descriptive words and it just ratchets it up, you know. And if you're not ready to go because you've done the brutal work and uncompromising work and training, you will fail. The quicksand will start as soon as you get your accreditation. It'll pick up speed. And then by the time you get to the blocks, you'll sit there going, what am I doing here? And you're not ready. Meanwhile, you've got a Gary or Junior standing there, or you've got a Beyondy standing there, you've got a Gross standing there. Well, God help you if you've got a Phelps standing there. Mm. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, and you look over to him, and he looks like, mate, this is where I holiday. This is how much fun this is. Mm -hmm. And you sit there going, I'm done. And you're done. Mm -hmm. You know, Because the moment that sort of creeps in, if you're not walking out on deck going, you guys are so sorry you're here. You know what I mean? Looking left and right, you lose. Simple as that. Mate, some of the, some of the best three minutes of podcast I've ever had right there. That's, that's brilliant. <laughs> right there. So much to learn. Uh, I hope people, I'm going to take that clip and just send it to everybody and just listen to this because it's so true. It is like spot on the, the Olympic yeah. experience. So it's amazing. So what was it like, obviously, to have a partner in this, you know, in your coach where you felt like, you know, for me, when, when, what I've tried to do as a coach and had success with is I want to partner with my athlete and say, yeah. you're not going to stand there alone. And I get that sense from Laurie that you weren't behind that block alone. And even mm -hmm. to the point where he's very vocal about that too. You know, you watch the video back and he's like, he's like kicking and screaming, unleash the animal. I mean, mm -hmm. that to me is a partnership, right? Yeah. And it was a partnership forged, you know, at five o'clock in the morning, there's a partnership forged, you know, a red eye flight back from Los Angeles and straight into another meet. You know, it, it was forged in um, a siege type mentality that it is us against them. There is nobody else. It's the Laurie Lawrence swim team up against the rest and the rest is the globe. Mm -hmm. And we're going to show these people what toughness is. We're going to show these people what winning is. And we're not going to take a backward step. Okay. If you're going to beat us, you're going to earn it. And we'll shake your hand and smile on your face. But we're inside. We're seething with agony that we're defeated. Right mm -hmm. now. That is the way we thought. We walked into the martial room like that, no matter what martial room it was. We smiled at you. We shook hands. We said g'day. We, we said a few jokes and stuff like that. But the whole time I'm looking at how do I take this guy apart? How do I get on top of him? Where doesn't he like me to swim? And then so you'd position yourself in the lane. You'd go out too hard. Like Laurie would set you up all the time. He'd say, mate, we're not ready to win this race, but you're going to win the first 100. And you're going to teach these people what it's like to be scared for the first 100 because you're going to be in front of them, right? And so I'm like... What? We've just done 10Ks in the water. I've done 200 laps. 
Okay, we've, we've rolled into this Queensland State Championships um, at night. I was still sweaty from getting out of the gym. I can barely, you know, my goggles are, you know, when I put my goggles on, they're filling up with sweat, okay, because I've just come <laughs> out of the gym. And Laurie goes, mate, don't get out of the pool unless you get your feet on the wall at the 100 metres first, okay? If you don't get on the, on the wall first in the 100 metres, you have failed, son, mm. right? Mm. Big challenge. So mm. I'm sitting there swaying on the blocks, going, goes bang, and I just take off like a scalded cat. Mm. I know the second 100 is going to be chewing rocks, the worst, like, you know, literally mm. across the bottom, but I've got to get through the first 100 to teach these people what it feels like to be in front of them. Mm. Pretty simple plan, right? Yeah. Focuses your mind, makes it makes it edible or one bite. Right? Yeah, yeah. And this is what Laurie's genius is. Laurie's genius, instead of letting me come out of the gym and live on the fact that, hey, I've done 10Ks today, um, this afternoon, done a bit of gym. You people, oh, I've showed you how tough I am. No, 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 no. That, that's good. But what is great? Okay, well, where is the great part of this? Okay, now, a lot of coaches would be listening to this podcast or sitting there and sitting there going, what's the point? You've done 10 Ks in the water. Surely that was the goal of the day to get your endurance up. Surely that was the, you know, the, 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 bio, uh, the part of the bio we want to work on. Sure. But for Laurie, it, it was always a marriage of psychological for me yeah. as the swimmer, mm -hmm. all these swimmers, and the psychological on the opposition. How can I place just a stone in their pond mm, yeah. or get a stone in their boot so they can, they can remember something that when I'm ready to race and I'm in front this far, they know what's happening and they're used to what's happening. And they might just... Think about it for two strokes, and those two strokes are what gives me a half a body length lead. Yes. And those two strokes are what really like snaps their uh, winning um, mindset. Mm. So that was the fun of the fair because as an athlete, like you think how stimulating that is. Mm. Like to have a guy in your corner that's not going to let you off. Totally. Having a guy in your corner that, oh, yeah, you've done really well today. Slap on your back. Yeah, well done, sunshine. But if you really want to be great and you really want to get prepared for the Olympic Games when shit will go down and things will go wrong, and people will be better than you, okay? Let's step up on the blocks and let's beat them to the 100. And it's not said in that tone. It said, you get your feet on the wall on the 100 to teach these people how to sit behind you or you lose. Mm. That's how it's said. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> I love it, mate. You're right. We, do, we need more of that these days. God, I love it. Uh, so yeah, beautiful. Yeah, we do. We do. We don't. Yeah. We do. We don't. No, you no, got to work it. with what you got. And the kids today, it's their world. You know, we yeah. look back, Borky, at a time when we were kids. Mm. And we look back and go, it's different. You know, but we've got to own where we are right now and yeah. we've got to let them own where they are right now. And the world is presenting a completely different menu for their mindset. And we've got to go with that. So what these podcasts do is give them an option to think differently. That's yeah. all. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't go, we can't wind the clock back to when men were more handsome <laughs> and better. You know, no, we've got true. to present it. Uh, we've got yeah. to present them with a mindset that they can think about. But the moment we go in with the Laurie Lawrence, you know, we lose them. Yeah, no, no, you're right. Absolutely. Um, so tell me, tell me this then, when you do ultimately walk into the room and you see three world record holders and you're walking into the, the final of the Olympics, I mean, what, what are you thinking? Honestly, like what were you thinking in 88 when you walked into the final and you see these guys maybe for the first time together, you know, and, and what are you, what are you thinking? Oh, but I was ready for it. Like, we had 14 heats. There was no semifinals back in the day. It was day one of competition. Um, Beyondy was after seven gold medals. That that was going to be the Spitz benchmark. Um, Matt was ready. Like, you know, looked fantastic in the morning. Had a beard in the morning. He was in heat number 13, I think. I was in heat number 14, uh, the last one. And I was up against Gross. And I was in lane seven. So 
we'd done an enormous amount of work coming into it. My, my, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, we got to the village 10 days before the first day of competition. There was no way I was going to march because I was, I, was, I was swimming the next day. Um, and, and I was really okay with that. I, yeah. I, I, I've never bought into any of the sort of ceremonies or anything like that. It was, a, it was an exciting experience to be in Seoul because we had uh, one, one really, really tall building. I think it was like 30 stories and the whole Australian team was in 30 stories. So we all flew over there on the same planes, two planes, you know, so there's, there's all the basketballers and everything. So there's, there's excitement everywhere. And I, I didn't leave my room for 10 days. So the Australian team was one of the first teams in. Um, South Korea was a very, very hot spot for um, freebies, sort of like China is today. So you had all these leather and Reeboks and all this sort of stuff. And coming from Australia, like we were poor, you know, we just didn't have the affluence or everything like that. So we knew getting over there, if, the, if we got there before the Americans, all the bargains would be there. So you could stock up for a whole year on bargains because that's the only money we had. Mm. So we had a huge amount of team members just going down to the markets that eat the one and just stocking up. Mate, I never left my room. I never got off my bed. <laughs> I, went, I went over to the food hall, came back. They'd come back from shopping. They'd got all these leather jackets and everything. All of a sudden they're going, oh, I hope they're still there when we're finished, you know, <laughs> in two weeks' time. No, they wouldn't be. So, um, but I just knew what I was there for. Yeah. You know, I knew I was on day one of competition, day day one, day two, and day three. That's mm. all I knew. Mm. And so I'd finally had a really, really good taper. I'd trained really hard for two years, hadn't really won a lot of things. It was sort of like a, sort of like like you were saying with Gary Hall Jr.'s prep, you know, I'd basically go on submarine. I'd, I'd buried myself in so much work, you couldn't even see me. I had made, I was swimming so slowly in races in the lead up to the trials that I had swimming mates asking me if I was even going to trials because I was swimming so slow. Oh, <laughs> <wow. laughs> Tired of settling for less than the best with your team's dryland program? SwimStrong Dryland is the answer you've been looking for. With world-class dryland programming for every age group, customized to fit your team's needs, nutritional coaching and education centered on the latest evidence-based research, leadership training and character development to promote an athlete-driven culture, sports psychology education and mental skills training, coaches' corners to promote collaboration, data-driven performance analysis, and an unrivaled family of athletes, coaches, and teams, fast swimming starts here. We individualize training in the pool, so why not individualize your nutrition? Erica Barney of Barney Wellness Building will help you and your swimmers get exactly what each athlete needs through genetic testing and personalized nutrition plans. So stop guessing what you should and shouldn't be putting into your body. Athletes within a few weeks have noticed they're recovering faster because they're fueling their body with what they need and staying away from what their body hates. Erica understands swimming. She gets it. She's worked with over 20 Olympians, including the fastest man in the world, Caleb Dressel. Group discounts are available. So go to Biney Wellness Building and get in touch with Erica today. That's Biney, B-E-I-N-E, wellnessbuilding.net. Yeah. So it came up, won the, two, won the two, the 200 and 400 of trials um, in pretty good times. So then set my side, you know, another four-month preparation coming into Seoul got over there and, and ready to go, you know, just basically walking to the pool, feeling great. We'd been running for over a year, getting ready for the walking to the pool and back. Cause we'd, we'd found out that it was better half a kilometer walk to the pool one way. Mm. So we didn't want to take the edge off our legs. So we were running six Ks a day, every day for a year, ready for wow. that. Wow. Yeah, I know. So, um, so we got there and, uh, and I didn't get off the bed for 10 days. I rolled in and my training times, like I finally got a rest and my training times, I used to do a, a test set three days out. Right, three days out, we'd do four 100s. Mm. 
on about 1.30. Okay, so the, the rest was, you know, the, the, the base was about normal. But I, I would be teeing off, you know, and I'd be sitting on 54s, maybe, hand wow. on the wall. Wow. And, uh, and the first one comes out as 51 and a half. Oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, when I seen it, I, I touched the wall and I look at the clock and I go, oh, Laurie yeah. goes, 56 flat, you pussy. What are you doing? In a big, loud voice, right? <laughs> and I look at him and go, what? And he goes, go with me, go with me, they're timing you. I'm like, right up. Because we had no internet. We had no cameras. Yeah, yeah. Like everybody's um, sports medicine guys were in the stands every single warm up, every mm. single training session. East Germans, um, West Germans, Americans, Russians, Romanians, doesn't matter who they were, they were getting timed, clocked, watched, count laps, mm. you know, strokes out of turns, you know, speed. Yeah. Mm. And so I'm like, he goes, they're watching, they're watching. I'm like, oh, okay. He goes, 56, you pussy, this is the Olympics. What do you think you're doing? You know, get up and go again. Oh, I'm disgusted in you, right? And so next one, tee off. You know, 52 flat feet. You know, yeah. push. And like Laurie's just like, like, oh, come on, mate. You might as well give it away. If this is all you can do, you know. So all the drama, all the theatre, all going on. But we were flying. We, we yeah. were feeling so amazing. We were like yeah. test set up. The test set is just coming out and. I'm getting two massages a day. I'm feeling so loose, so ready, walking to the pool, not sweating, seeing a few of the guys I was going to race, you know, having a hard time with the walk because I hadn't done their running. So I knew I really had a six-shooter in my pocket. I knew mm. I really had to step up. Mm. And all week we were just firming up that feeling, firming up that feeling. So when I walked in and I, I ran gross down in the heat, um, so swimming along, I went into that heat at a 150.05, best time. Dropped a, a 48.3 to get lane six. So already a point, 1.7 PB after one swim. Uh, ran gross down, but let him win. So you can have lane three. I wanted to get next to Biondi. Uh, uh, Biondi was going to be second fastest qualifier. He was the form swimmer. But as they lined up, it lined up with the world record holder in the 200, the world record holder after Wodad in the 400 in lane four. Mm. And lane five was, was the fastest man on the planet, Matt Biondi in the 100 in lane number five and, and me. So in those days, our lane ropes couldn't hold a wave, especially with, you know, eight big baboons hitting the water and racing down at the speed of the 200. There's a one foot chop coming behind you. So there was always that, right? Now we used to practice it. We used to get Brooksy and all the main machine and Greg Fasala and all these great big sprinters like you, mate, in the water uh, across the diving pool. And we would learn how to drag off these mm, big guys. Yeah. And all these little kids would tuck in under their arm, pick their ass and you picked up with the wave and away we'd go, right? Because this was the tactics of the 80s. The lane ropes were only about that in diameter. They were called any wave, but they couldn't hold a, a hold a sprint race, right? So as a so here's Biondi, and we know this. He knows this. This is the thing. Like everybody knew what was about to happen. Um, so Biondi's a front runner. He approaches the 200 like a sprint, and he's going to try to steal it. A long sprint. So his value is in the first 100 with his blistering speed. No mm. one can hold him. He's amazing, mm. right? And if he gets too far in front on that third lap, we can't catch him. He's strong enough, right? Yeah. Now, I'm coming from a 200, 400 base. So my, my value is in the second half of the race, the last two laps. So my whole deal is a little bit like that race I was talking to, to you about before. If I let him go too far in the first 100, I'm shot. I can't catch him, okay? So we line up. He's in lane five. I'm in lane six. On the inside of him in lane four is a world record holder. I'm ranked 48th in the world. He's only raced me once and it was two years before I got 60, got second. Okay, you were ranked 48th in the world then? Yeah. 
Oh my so god! I was 48th in the world. I landed in lane number lane number six as the fourth fastest qualifier of the fastest race in history. Right? Wow! We've got the European champions. We've got the drug cheats from East Germany. Um, we've got the second American who beat Beyond at the trial, Troy Dolby. So we've got the two Americans, the West German world record holder, the informed uh, Polish swimmer in lane four, and and European champion Thomas Farner in lane eight. Uh, lane seven, and we've got the Swedish champion named Anders Holmans, who will come up a, a little bit later. But um, so we lined up. That's how we lined up. Fastest race in history. The first first race of Matt Biondi's huge calendar over the next eight days to win the seven gold medals. And like we've changed the entire thing to make sure that NBC New York basically is live. So you know we, we've changed the whole program for NBC in New York, um, and we're ready to go. Now Biondi has to make a decision. Who am I going to give an advantage to? Because he's going to be in front. No one's going to be able to hold this cap. He is that fast. He's mm-hmm. that good. Right? Yeah. So he's got to decide with these little lane ropes where his wave is going to go. Is he going to swim in the middle of the lane so both sides can get an advantage? Or is he going to swim on one side and make a decision on who's going to give an advantage to? And we knew at 48th the world, he was coming over our side, right? He's not going to go over next to the world record holder. That's beggar's belief. Sure. You know? So we know he's coming over. He knows he's coming over and he's all right with it and so are we. So the gun goes. And I know that if I dive in and swim over to get under his arm on my lane rope on my right, he'll be gone. So I line up on the blocks with my foot hanging over his side. So my foot is hanging over. Really? Oh, my I've got God. two or three toes hanging over this side of the lane rope because I am literally going to dive on that lane rope. No <laughs> problem. I'll dive under him if I have to. Right? <laughs> So the gun goes bang, we're finally off. We had a false start. Uh, in those days, you could have one. And so we have this false start, get up, go again, bang, off we go. And I dive in. And you know when you dive in sometimes and you think you're going to hit something, and you go, Ugh. yeah, yeah. I'm going to hit the lane rope. So yeah. I kind of go, Ugh, and the lane rope just brushes my shoulder as I hit. Oh, wow. Right? And so I come up, first six strokes, head down, come up, first stroke, bang, I can see his togs in the slot. Hmm. Now that's where my slot is hmm. under his arm in the trough. Now my ass is about an inch higher in the water. And he, he drags me out in that spot, right? And he's looking at me, he knows what's going on. And he drags me out um, a second and a half faster than I've ever been through the first hundred of a turn. Wow. Okay? And I'm feeling good because I've been in the slot. So he's, his trough has supplied the right gear for me to get out. So I, while I should be redlining, I'm not, I'm feeling okay. I hit the turn at the halfway mark. He's easily in front. He's controlling the race beautifully. He's doing really, really well out in front of that. And then in about 75 metres to swim, this is where I start to pack up because the third lap, you've got to move. If you're not at your top speed going into the last turn of a 200 metres freestyle, you've got to generate speed out of the turn. You don't want to be doing that. You want to be at your top speed as you go into the turn and then the turn adds to your top speed. So your biggest momentum in the race, if you're doing it right, is your third turn. And I mm. come into the third turn, I've left him, I've got in the middle of the lane. I'm, my stroke count is exactly the same stroke count as my first lap. I look over his shoulder, I get up on him. He's starting to fail. I get up on him, I see across the back, his back, and the other two world champions are behind us. The other two world record holders. So I'm sitting there going, right, I'm right where I'm on there. I hit the turn of my life. Like I'm talking a turn, hooky, that you dream about, brother. Mm-hmm. It, I came off with so much momentum, went into my stroke, came up, and all down the last length, I'm only going to breathe on my right, okay? My left hand is my weak side, but that's where all the world record holders are. So I don't know where they are. For the whole last lap, all I'm saying is, you've trained for this. This is your moment. Don't fuck it up. 
let's go, get home. And I look up, coming out of turn, and there's a guy in lane eight named Enders Holmitz with a mm. yellow cap on from Sweden, right? <laughs> yeah. And my first thought is, what does this bloke from Sweden think he's doing? No one in Sweden can swim, right? <laughs> I love it. And so I've had this argument with Anders that he didn't know what was going on. It was very one way. And I've rounded <laughs> him up with 25 metres to swim. And in our squad, we, we always put our heads down, right? We'd do 100 metres, no breathers, 10 of them in a row and 130, right? So we got used to not breathing from a long way out because Laurie always taught us that it was redundant. You know, your best stroke is when your head is down, not breathing. That's when you get knocked off balance and you lose efficiency. You don't need a breath from five in you won't recycle it in time. So it's redundant. So we, for years, did no breathing into the wall. So I put my head down with 12 metres to swim, right? I rounded him up, didn't know where they were, three world record holders. Put my head down, 10 perfect strokes to the wall. Bang, perfect stroke, right? I quickly have a look to my left where all the world record holders are. I know my hand is on the wall, but the water out there is still smooth, undisturbed, mm. reflective. I could see the crowd on the water, actually. Mm. And then they, they've come in and, and, disturbed, and, and disturbed it. So my hand's on the wall. No one else has arrived. I turn around to the, to the scoreboard. D Armstrong, AUS, Australia, 147.25, uh, WR, and just this number one, flashing, 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 flashing. And I'm sitting there going, did boom, it. Boom, boom. Four-year clock. <laughs> just put an exclamation mark on the four-year clock, and then everything goes nuts. Well, that's what I mean, mate. Like, listen, honestly, I love the story. It's great. There's a little bit of bullshit in there because the first 20 minutes you told me how you prepared to win this damn race. And then the next 10 minutes you, you told me that you had the strategy of, of surfing Matt Biondi. I don't believe the surf story. I believe the really? preparation story. No, I do. I do. But like, you don't give yourself enough credit is what I'm saying. You prepared oh. for five years, mate, to, to oh, take down these guys. Oh, okay, so you're, you're putting more importance that the surfing was what got me there rather than the prep. No, no, no. I, no. I, no, no, I'm putting less. I, yeah, I'm saying you're wrong. Like, the surfing was very minimal, you know? It was very minimal. Oh, you know? no, the surfing was the 80s, mate. The surfing was the 80s. It happened every single race in the yeah, 80s. Yeah, no, I know that. But listen, mate, you prepared for this race. There's oh, yeah. no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, because people sort of say, you know, beyond your, if you didn't get lane six... And say you got lane seven, what would you have done? I said, backed up and beat him somewhere else. Exactly. I mean, if Beyond was in lane one, you still would have won that race. That's what I'm saying. It would have been a little bit difficult to see him over there, but yeah, I would have ran it. Anyway. I'm saying you still would have won that race. You were ready to win that race, mate. I'm yeah, and I was. And, and, Mentally and physically, um, you were ready to win that race, no matter yeah. where Matt Beyondi was in that pool. Yeah, no, I'd done the work. And, and that's what we've got to come back to when we're, when we're describing great moments and stuff like that. Yeah. Look at where the work was done. Yep. It was done years before, exactly. day in, day out. So when we got there, we were able to utilize it and, and we were mentally strong enough and yep. psychologically ready. Like I 100%. talk about the bubble and I've talked about Mike Tyson. But when I'd walk into that martial room, mate, I would just be swearing at these people in my head the whole time. Yep. They were nothing to me. They were less than nothing. I don't mm -hmm. care who you are. You know, like this self-talk. I remember I was having a massage on deck. We'd warmed up. We're ready to go. I had our tactics right. We're going to go down the master room. Had my last uh, massage. I had Sue Stanley and Dorothy Foley massaging me. Um, and our psychologist, we had a psychologist named Jeff Bond from the AIS, from the Institute of Sport. And Jeff came up to me and psychology was brand new. You know, it was basically just, just sort of first couple of teams that we had a psychologist. And he's come up to me and he goes, okay, Dunk, I think we should have a chat about uh, what's going to happen next. And apparently I've rolled over and said, well, I'll tell you what, Jeff, 
how about you go fuck yourself? I'm going to go down to the uh, master room, get ready to win a gold medal. How about that? <laughs> and, he, and he was good enough to sort of say, good chat. See you later. And, walked <laughs> off, right? yeah. and the girls didn't say anything. Now, I didn't even, I can't even remember that. That's not a memory of mine. We had a reunion for the 88 team 10 years later and Sue and Dorothy came up to me, the masseuses. And she said, and they said to us, our favorite memory is when you told uh, Jeff Bond to go F himself. And I'm like, what are you what? talking about? And she goes, you don't remember that? I go, no, no. So they told me this story that I just told you, but that's not my story. I can't yeah. even remember seeing his face. Yeah, yeah. Because your bubble is what you make it. Mm-hmm. And for the unreal circumstance of the Olympic Games and the tournament is freestyle, you, you go into this unreal, almost surreal place. Yeah. And, and then you get ready to execute. Yep. And if you're brave enough and courageous enough, nothing gets inside your bubble until you can execute. Yeah. And that's why it's a little bit strange when you see all these champions over the Olympics, you know, get out of the pool and barely talk. Yeah. Because everything they've dreamed about, their subconscious has become reality. The sliding door is too fast. And now they've got to articulate it. Not, not possible. And so they say, oh, you know, it's really great to be here. And oh, I can't really, can't really believe it. And that's, that's the code. I can't really believe it. Because now they're standing in reality after they've been dreaming it for like nine or 10 years. Sure. So it's interesting. And I was, I was in that same boat too. Yeah. Oh, mate, that's what I mean. You know, like to me, it doesn't matter where Beyondy was, you were prepared to win that race physically and mentally without a doubt. If you're in that space, you're ready to kill. And and that's yeah. what you prove, you know, so, so much more credit has to be given into the, the, the preparation and where you were at, at that point in time. I and, agree. And, and, I agree. and look, look, there's also, look, I do want to talk about this just briefly real quick. There's also the attrition that you talked about. What is it about you that, Mm. that you survived that like you, what what is it internally about you that made you special that you were able to rise above all that preparation and then go to olympic games and be ranked 48th in the world and then win the gold medal you know there's got to be something about you that you recognize in yourself as well yeah look the joke is that it takes a special kind of intelligence to be a swimmer mate. because it's a pretty boring sport yeah sure <laughs> but i think i had a real taste for it I really understood swimming. Um, when I look at Thorpe, Ian Thorpe and other people, I can recognize it in them too. They sure. get it. Yeah. Like, you know, swimming and I, we just get each other from a really, really deep place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so therefore you can mount the intensity on top of that love. Okay. Because you have a passion, drive, determination, you can mount all those things in varying degrees at times to outwork outthink, outpassion, outdrive, outdetermine people around you. And then you can have that sort of success along the way, which then gains momentum. And then all of a sudden people are taking a step back from your intensity. And so it allows you to win even more and even more and even more. Like you look at someone like an ultimate winner, like Phelps, who with his 23 gold, the job's done. Like he gets on the blocks, the job is done because his intensity is just so hard to stand there. His intensity is just so much. Mm. And then you got your skills on top of it. Then you got his understanding on top of it. Then you got his personality on top of it. Then you got his structure and framework with coaches and people who invest in, you know, when does it stop? But that's what I had. And, and I can only articulate it now at the time that was, that was life. Yeah. But when I look back at it now as a 52 year old, looking at my career in my twenties, you know, I can see that I, I was just up for it. I was up for anything that was coming my way and I found the most brutal coach in on the planet to deliver it. Mm. And so we got into this relationship of intensity, mm. which was completely intoxicating day to day. Um, 
but not everybody understands it. There's a lot of tracks to winning, right? When you look at, see, I, I swim against some really, really good guys. Like Matt Biondi is a good bloke, really good bloke. Should have been Australian maybe, but anyway. Um, and then you had then you had Gross and Farner and uh, Woda. They, they were all really, really good men, right? And they all approached it slightly differently. Like when I see little bits and pieces from Matt and the life he's constructed afterwards, he really hasn't changed much. He really approached his swimming from a very, very different sphere. And this is my interpretation only. Uh, but I could see how much he, he really enjoyed the fluidness of it. The, the, you know, he swam with whales and dolphins. He did his um, eco stuff. And you could see that there was a flow before mm. the word flow was ever like a, uh, a, a motivational or a inspirational yeah. type of uh, feeling. Mm. Yeah, he was, the, he was the first flow athlete, I believe. Mm. Um, at the Olympic Games and you know he, he played amazing uh, water polo he could play basketball he went to Cal Berkeley you know which was you know a great sporting school but not like UCLA or not like you know those really hardcore places where sport was like that yeah. mm. Cal Berkeley had a had a had a group of people coming in from all kinds of different walks of life and, and I, I really believe that Matt carried that with him so he was a very different cat from me mm. like I was all about this moment this intensity who's a loser who's a winner you know that kind mm. of thing Sure. And so, um, and so there was plenty of ways to get to be a winner. And I was exposed to a lot of those. And I have in my later life gone back and looked at those lessons. Now that I'm away from the intensity and the only way I can win, it's not true. So now I've, I've, I've sort of gone back and repackaged sort of like all of my thoughts around that. And it's, yeah, it's fascinating to see how you can get to the line and win with different types of work. Yeah, good stuff, mate. And I'm kind of interested in that aspect of it too, beyond, beyond that. So, you know, when I talk to athletes these days, a lot of them are more in touch with some things that are going on in their, in their lives. And, and we're a lot more in, in tune with kind of a depression these days, you know, athletes and depression is such a big topic. Yeah. Um, what are some of the negative effects from this? When you, when you push your body like that, when you push your mind like that, and you don't have to get too personal with me, but just kind of just give me some things maybe that have affected you that you've learned from that you can see from that perspective has been maybe a negative in your life. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good comment. The way you set that up is, is really easy to describe because like we are talking about the intensity I brought to my swimming, that's a double-edged sword, right? There's plus and minuses sure. to that. Because once you become an ultimate winner with this one uh, technique as intensity, drive, mm. determination, everything becomes Olympic. So out of the water, you know, my relationship suffered. A, I got married very early, got divorced very early. We're only married a couple of years. Had two sons in that time. And I was trying to be the Olympic dad, the Olympic husband, the Olympic provider, the Olympic this, Olympic that. Everyone thought I should have had a million dollars. And, and because they thought it, I thought it. And so I had this really misconception in terms of that, but I just applied my intensity, my focus. I just burnt everybody out. You could call it narcissistic. Yeah. So my selfishness and narcissistic behavior with that intensity was really, really the pendulum swung, swung all the way over to the negative as well. So broken relationships, broken mateships, uh, broken deals, um, not getting the winning that I really thought I deserved. So really broken inside. Uh, I turned to alcohol, drugs, sex, and rock and roll. Um, so there was all those sort of things being put in the bucket. And when I took drugs, I took drugs like an Olympic champion, right? When I drank, I drank like an Olympic champion. When I was having an argument, I was having an argument like with that intensity, like sure. an Olympic champion. So mm. I just had this one technique for victory and I tried to apply it to so many things that it was not appropriate. Mm. And so I went through this huge arc of, of troubles 
because I wasn't ever winning a gold medal doing it. And there wasn't any gold medal to win in it. And it took me years to work that out, years to work out that there's, there's nuance, there's intensity, um, there's, there's surrender. <laughs> and I'd never applied that word to anything, surrender. Yeah. There's servant leadership. You know, there, there's, there's a servant in relationship that, you know, there's compromise mm -hmm. and all these sort of things. So this is all a learned behavior that I can talk quite easily about now. But in, the, in my uh, mid to uh, mid 20s to mid 30s, it was a decade of real trouble for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, real trouble. And I was coming, becoming quite pathetic in terms of what I thought the world owed me, what I thought the world wasn't delivering for me, how people were betraying me by not being keeping up the intensity. Um, you know, my strongest relationship in my swimming years was Laurie Lawrence, and I thought all relationships should have that intensity and excitement and things that we've already talked about in this podcast. And so, like, yeah, I went into this really, really crazy time in my life where I was unstable, um, I was uh, unreliable, I was a liar. Um, I wasn't authentic in all my relationships and basically uh, at work with what I was doing. I was doing things trying to find the Olympic high and it's not reasonable. Mm. It's not possible. And yet because I was an Olympic champion, I thought it was completely reasonable, completely possible. So my circle of understanding people in my life was very small, very small. And so I had this toxic, toxic um, attitude for friendship, for people around me. Um, and, and I really did some damage. I really, really, to myself especially, but to people around me too. And it wasn't until I was around about 37 um, that I was becoming pathetic. I, I could really feel that I was becoming pathetic. I was about to burn my, my current group of relationships out. I was about to move cities again, chasing another television deal or whatever I was doing in broadcasting, which would reset basically all the people that I burnt out in my last television deal. Um, the good news is there was no social media back then. I think, I think in, in that state of social media, I would have been lost. Mm. I would have really, really done some damage. But um, yeah, a mate of mine took me to church. And so as I was becoming pathetic in this world, I learned that you know, we're not of this world, thanks to the love of Jesus Christ. And so that really transformed me and started me on a completely different path and allowed me to turn around and look at myself and see the damage I was doing, see the damage I was doing to myself and then get my vision up to a much higher and more respectable and more loving. And I was able to learn what love was. And with that came the journey out of that sort of behavior into where I am today, uh, which is 17 years later. And my relationships are strong. I'm not trying to win Olympic gold medal in anything I'm doing. I love people for who they are and how they present. Um, I'm still ambitious, but it's ambition for the right things in life rather than sort of the bling. And, and, I, I live now in 17 year journey, you know, there's still problems, Yeah. but I live now in a space of um, great pace for myself. My strengths are on display. I have rigorous authenticity. Um, I surrender the outcome and I try to do the servant leadership. Now that's a da daily battle because in me is an Olympic champion. Sure. And that, and, and when I let my thoughts unravel, I jump into those behaviors very, very quickly. So it's a daily battle to keep surrendering the outcomes, surrendering who I am for what I am today. So the work I do now, I'm very, very proud of. The relationships I'm more proud of and my relationship with Jesus is the fuel of all of that stability. Man, that's a beautiful message. I'm so thankful that you were able to 
you know, be comfortable enough to kind of dig into that. And it sounds like mm. you're, you're just comfortable in yourself. So you, you mm. probably find telling anybody that, so that's great, but the message is very powerful. And, um, I'm, I'm thankful that I'll be able to share this with a lot of people too. No, I'm thankful too, mate. See, I, I live in this space to sort of say, you can argue about footy. You can argue about Trump and politics. If you like, you can argue about, uh, the job. You can argue about a lot of things, but you can't argue with a man's story because that's all he's got. And nobody went, ever went backwards from encouragement. So this is who I am and I'm going to encourage people to be who they are mm. to get them going forward. Now that's a really simple mm. philosophy in life. Not always easy to do, mm. but it's something that you can wake up every single morning, open your eyes and get to, and sort of have that aspiration every day to encourage people and be authentic. Well, it's part of, part of my journey too i guess i've i've kind of gone through you know um you go through similar track in life where you where you learn and grow and and you look back and you reflect and part of the reason why i did start this podcast and just talking to people and it's part of the reason why i don't plan my my questions because i just want the conversation to flow and i want to i want to learn so um i'm very thankful that you were would come on I, i mean i only asked you you know 24 hours ago and you said let's do it so it's like mate that's awesome and uh you have an incredible story um, not only back in the 80s but but what you're doing now and, and i'm just uh very thankful that we could reconnect mate yeah i was delighted to get your email mate you know um you occupy a really significant part in my broadcasting life with all the things you did in the pool you know as a broadcaster you're invested in what's happening in the pool because you want people like yourself to win and win spectacularly yeah so you can commentate about it yeah so what you're doing has real meaning so mate getting your email was awesome. I had to look up three, three, four to see where you are. Um, and, uh, Alabama, mate, Alabama. Alabama. And mate, there's some very interesting, uh, little towns in Alabama where three, three, four is, by the way, I was going to say, yeah. Hey, how is, uh, is it yeah. optic, uh, optic or something like that? Anyway, oh, I hope like I gonna, it, maybe. I was, yeah, I was going to, I was going to jazz you up about it and sort of say, <laughs> how's downtown? What's today? But, um, <laughs> You're sitting in San Diego, mate, getting your tan on, Southern California, coming into the summertime. You're doing well, Hooky. I really uh, enjoy that, yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah, mate. Yeah, I'm sitting in David Marsh's house right now. So, uh, David, this is your stuff. Um, yeah. But, I was going to say, mate, that's a very, very good piece of art you got back there. I know, I know. It kind of matches the shirt a little bit too. Yeah, but, uh, look at you. Mate, awesome. I uh, love it. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Good to see you happy and healthy, mate. Uh, very happy yeah. about that. Well, rock on, mate. And good luck with the podcast. I know you're going to do well because you do well at everything you do. But, you know, getting people to share their story and getting that audience up to listen to it is inspiring. And you're doing a great job, mate. So thanks, thanks. mate. Yep. All right. Cheers, Cheers mate. Take care. All right. Cheers from Australia, bro. Miss yeah, you. Mate. Bye. See you, bud.